I don't know if you noticed this glow, but every December, just as finals start up, I feel like mental health becomes a hot topic of discussion for the kids in our generation. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like at least when it's finals time, it's a little more than just the jokey, oh my gosh, I'm so anxious, oh my gosh, my life is falling apart. But that's when people really start to dig into what they're actually feeling and their real mental health struggles that they're realizing that they're having. And you know what? I feel like today's a good day to talk about that, just in light of final season, everyone. I'm Caroline Bonnenberger. And I'm Glow Robinson. And you are listening to Go Off. So first, let's just listen to what some people had to say when we asked them, are we, as in Gen Z, the most anxious generation? Let's see what they had to say about that. I was born in 2002, and I feel like we're the most nervous generation because we have this whole world of social media now, and social media pressures us to have these like perfect Instagrammable lives. Because of that, there's so much pressure with society on us too, and our generation just has to go through all this at once. I was born in the year 2000, and I would say we are the most anxious generation because of stresses placed on us during grade school and in higher institutions, as success is defined by grades, test scores, and other academic pressures. I was born in 2000, and I think that our generation is more anxious for, first of all, the obvious reason of social media and the information overload and the feeling of everybody being able to see everything we do. But even further, I think a lot of the older generations would always look forward to the future and have something to look forward to, that the future was going to be better. But with our generation, we're not even sure that a future is going to exist. So, again, a common theme from those sound bites, I guess, Glow, is people do think that we're pretty anxious. And, I mean, some people gave reasons for, like, social media and, um, I guess, our current, like, political climate. But do you have anything, perhaps, that you think could be influencing our mental health today as young people? Oh, my gosh, so (laughs) many things. Um, I think being the most stressed and depressed generation is there's a lot of multi-factors. And I think the first thing I want to make really clear is I feel that, historically speaking, in my upbringing, I'm, I think it's changing now, but what our generation's been conditioned to is kind of a one, one solution fits all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of been like, oh, well, if you're sad, get over it. Our generation didn't have to deal with that. And I think it's a lot more nuanced now because I think we're facing a lot more pressures and stresses that other generations didn't have to deal with. So, for example, we're the first generation that has had 9-11 since pretty much we were around. Exactly. Um, which is huge. And I think, you know, you might be thinking, oh, well, this is about stress and you're all taking finals. But I, I think just to kind of give a overview or a background of where we're coming from as a Gen Z perspective, I think will be maybe helpful or insightful about, wow, I didn't really think about this or, oh, you know, um, this is something new to add to the table or to enhance the table because the table is already growing. Mm-hmm. So I think the fact that we're the first generation with 9-11 to be born is significant because we've always had in the back of our heads. I think the second thing is the um, grind in the job market, I think, has changed a lot. And I think what we're starting to notice is the idea of getting a job and being able to stay with that job and having security and stability. We millennials are the first generation where their parents have actually done 
economically better than they have. And I think, you know, as we enter the job market as Gen Zers, now that we're in college and high school, I think that's something really significant to consider in the sense of, oh my God, will I be successful? Will there be a middle class? The idea of that, oh, I have to work all these things just to have a decent life in a metropolitan area, I think is really significant. I think another issue that is really prevalent is climate change. And I think that is a huge stressor to a lot of Gen Zers. It kind of like, great, we have to clean up all this crap that has been left for us. And I think that that's probably one of the most crucial, vital issues that we have to deal with on a daily basis, kind of like bringing your own stuff or becoming vegan or all these issues, not that they're necessarily stressors, but kind of like, will we be able to do the same, live our lifestyle 10 years from now in the same way? I feel like what you said, all three of those factors that you just said, kind of contribute to a culture of anxiety, I guess, that has occurred ever since 9-11. This type of anxiety is unprecedented, especially like, you know, back in the day, there was the Cold War. There was the glooming threat of like nuclear annihilation. Or having to go to war, too. Exactly. Being drafted into war, that is obviously another real anxiety that generations past had to deal with. But... Ever, like we were born into a post post 9/11 world just growing up and i remember seeing in the news when i was younger ever since like i'd say 2004 sure. with like the invasion of iraq yeah just you know tragedy after tragedy after tragedy in the news with climate change with um the housing market with the sure, job market the housing market yeah absolutely just so many stressors that we as young kids didn't have to deal with, but we were present in that. And we saw the oh, yeah. behaviors and the actions of the adults around that. And Absolutely. that kind of, we kind of just fed off of that. Like, I still have like flying anxiety because, I mean, again, the chances of something like a terrorist attack on a plane occurring in this day and age is rare, especially in America. Yeah. But still, there's that anxiety that's there. That's why I don't really like flying that much. It's just because we were born into this culture of anxiety that was, I feel, prevalent ever since 9-11. Well, I think when we were really little, you know, maybe like before we were like maybe ten, like teenagers, I think there was a little bit more, you know, that sugar-coated optimism, like, oh, like, like the world's becoming a better place. And I think there's a lot of really great initiatives that are really important to acknowledge in the sense of that I think young people are more aware of the issues going going on in the world than I think before just the way that we've reacted and all the movements that are going on and how passionate people are and reprioritizing what's important. So if there's a climate strike at your school, people are going to show up to it. It's not going to be like, oh, those are the ultra liberals or, oh, those are the hippies. No, I think like a lot of people from across all sectors of our school would be showing up to events oh, like yeah. these. And I think really trying to take a stance saying, no, I'm sorry, we need to address this first. Oh, for sure. But I think also that once, you know, we started to become teenagers and really starting to see a lot of the really vital problematic issues, like, I mean, in San Francisco, the housing crisis where I'm from, just seeing these things on a day-to-day basis that are becoming so crucial and seeing just the disparities growing at such an astronomical rate um, is being really prevalent. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something to also acknowledge. There's a lot of gloomy things that I think have made us feel hopeless a little bit in terms of the direction of where the world's going, where um, politics is going, and how to reform that and feeling, well, can I actually make a change? Or is this going to take super, uh, like, my whole lifetime to do? The uh, culture of anxiety, that could be described, I'm guessing, as like a 
macrocosm of sorts. Right. But there are smaller little things I feel that are affecting us, but not other people. Glow, do you have something to say about yes, that? Yes, I do. Okay, so there is this book that I started reading over the summer. I highly recommend it to anyone that's looking for a good read over winter break called Late Bloomers. And I highly recommend this to all Gen Zers because it is about Gen Z. But basically, this researcher was really fascinated about why we are the most anxious generation. And one of the things that he was saying was that there's been a lot more emphasis of trying to be younger and better at an earlier age, that level of excellence, that level of so being so impressive above the fray culturally, that hasn't been the case in other generations. So for example, Forbes 30 under 30, the idea of, you know, being super successful, starting your own company, doing all these things used to be very commendable by the time you were 50, maybe 60 that, you know, it's taken you 50, 60 years to build up the rapport and do this. But then in the early 2000s, we started to see Facebook and Twitter and you name it, all these, the tech boom, which is not a bad thing. I mean, there's been a lot of good things with it too. We'll talk about the bad things later in our episode, but there's been, but the thing is when you have a college kid like Mark Zuckerberg coming up with this app that is used by billions of people now on the planet, that becomes the new standard of excellence or that, oh, that's success. And I think a lot of uh, media coverage has become you know, that seeped into that, like, oh, well, this kid is doing this at age 10. Like, wow, he's going to be a genius and going to get his PhD by the time he's 15. That's become more normal. Mm -hmm. And it's not healthy to go in that aspect. Like, we're in the sense of kids are being kids. Like, the idea of you're 12 years old and you're on a travel team traveling every single weekend for a soccer game. I mean, that's great that you get to bond with your teammates and it's a good experience. But the idea of having recreational time with your family, with your friends at home, you know, going to the park or, you know, just having some fun, going out to Sunday brunch with your parents, like that's normal. Mm -hmm. And I think those basic recreational normal things that, you know, are food for your soul or food for your well-being is not a priority anymore because they're like no it's all about it's all about the grind it's all about getting started and so when we've put this this emphasis on such a young age that for our generation more than others according to this book it's become very problematic i think we actually talked about this topic in a prior episode yes we did and we talked a little bit also about how that sort of starts at the school level at first and mm-hmm. from there that's why we get all these super ambitious, super high achieving people in our generation. We both went to pretty high achieving high schools, pretty like high pressure Mm -hmm. high schools where you were expected to be part of a lot of clubs to get amazing grades, to take all the APs. And I'm, I can't even, I can't pinpoint how and when that shift occurred where, you know, school was like a normal thing to happen. And then you had like outside interest to no school is your whole life and you have to do amazing in it to get into an amazing college or even a not amazing college you still need to do amazing in high school but i don't know when that shift happened but oh my gosh did it affect our generation absolutely adding on to that there was an article i read my senior year of high school i mean it came out right around like college app season when we were submitting mm-hmm. our apps and it was basically about this really long feature i'll have to look up the name and post it but it was this long feature about um kids in Manhattan that were having so much anxiety that they had to get pulled out of school, go to these retreats, and they even had stress coaches in Manhattan wow. where, where parents would pay therapists, essentially, to calm the kids down because they were so anxious about their future. 
And it's amazing because I think that different socioeconomic levels deal with different types of stress in different ways. And so really what I can talk about has been my situation, which is very similar to yours, Caroline, coming from San Francisco, which has surpassed the level of competitiveness about applying out of my zip code, um, according to for college admissions, because, you know, you're compared with Silicon Valley and you're compared with, um, you know, a lot of affluence or a lot of resources because that's the way you're measured. And I think there's there's this level of like, oh my God, if I don't get into this college, my life is over, or even seeing the opportunities. But the, at the end of the day, it doesn't, I think a lot of high schoolers don't realize that that doesn't stop there. I think there's a lot of other issues that I've even noticed here at Boston University, a really well-renowned school, where kids, if you're on financial aid and you're not getting full aid, you're still having to work jobs and pay for your education and still do that. And you can't even get the true college experience of, oh, you know, like, having to take a class and then worrying about how much your textbooks are going to cost. Like this should not be an issue, but it's another stressor that we still have to deal with even at prime institutions. And so just because you go to an institution like this doesn't mean, you know, everything's worked out for you. But I think in high school, that idea is glorified. I don't know if I should necessarily be anxious about this just yet, but I'm anxious about my financial future and how going to a super expensive private school is going to affect my future. And on top of that, I'm taking super rigorous courses. And on top of that, I'm building up my resume with, like, I'm not special in that. Like, there are so many other kids who are also in the same situation as me, like so many other kids, people I'm friends with. But oddly enough, we don't really talk about that. Or if we do talk about it, it's kind of like in private, like it's still kind of shameful to talk about which is weird because there's been such a big push for like the destigmatization of mental health but yet we still don't feel comfortable reaching out and saying hey i'm struggling i've taken on like way more than i can handle or i'm just like stressed about my, my future and i don't know I, I wonder why that is well i think another thing i first want to kind of acknowledge is that other generations had this stressor too but what's happened is our what we're coming into is a huge economic disparity that hasn't been around before in this way or it hasn't been around in a really long time where the rich and the poor are so economically contrast. Mm -hmm. The idea of having a shrinking middle class is apparent. Even though the economy is doing well, it's, it could be very prevalent in the next couple of years that where we have a bubble burst where the economy will go down and we will be graduating at a time where it's very difficult to land a job mm. um, compared to times like these. But there has to be something more to our generation that is making us just more stressed because here's like an amazing, like not amazing, oh my gosh. Here's an interesting thing that I found from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, so this is a quote from uh, one of their web pages. Most adolescents experience positive mental health, but one in five has had a serious mental health disorder at some point in their life. Problems with mental health often start early in life. In fact, half of all mental health problems begin by age 14. Now, this isn't directly like talking about Gen Z. It's more talking about young people in America. But oh my goodness, it's from 2017. The fact that one in five 14 year olds yeah. has had like a serious mental health issue at like some point in their lives, that's just wild to me. And I don't know, like, how come we're not talking about that? If one in five people is, is experiencing that, I think that's safe to classify that as like an epidemic. Yes. Oh, I completely agree. This is a, definitely like a crisis of some sort. I think one of the other issues is that 
I think we put, we're hard on ourselves. It's interesting because, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk that, oh, you know, well, I think this is more of a millennial thing of like, oh, you're the trophy kids or, oh, you know, you got praised every single time you did something. And I don't know how much correlation, I know there's been a lot of research done on this, is actually really related to that because it could be the hypothesis I would conceive as a young person with this is you get these trophies for doing everything and then the minute that you are not validated in that aspect you start to question a lot of things but if you think about it if you think that if our culture is so focused on trying to be successful or trying to chug out numbers or trying to have some sort of metric to define success if that becomes tied to your identity because that's what you're spending predominantly most of your time working towards of course these things are going to become a lot more um uh, magnified or inflamed to a much greater extent if that is how you are allocating your time what you're tying what you do because if you think about it your identity is done based on who you are and what you do and how you spend your time um, and what that makes you and so if you're doing things that are towards those goals of producing that metric by society's success and that doesn't go right for you well, of course, you're going to feel upset about it to a much higher extent because that's become inflamed because the proportion of you doing things that are not that are recreational, that are relaxing are not are not going to represent or make that up because that hasn't been allocated as a priority or an important in your life. If so much of your successes are tied to your identity. I can definitely see why 18 percent of people uh, ages 18 to 54 have a diagnosed anxiety disorder and why 9.4% of people 18 to 64 have a diagnosed depressive disorder and those are from uh, Johns Hopkins Medicine. That makes sense to me, I guess. What doesn't make sense to me is that, you know, that is still quite a high amount of Americans across all age groups, but as we've seen from the uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, especially young people, that's a high percentage of people to be struggling with a illness. In illness, that's what it is. And to not have any infrastructure to help a lot of these people out. Have you ever seen those memes about how terrible like student health services is at BU? With, Absolutely. Um, with mental health issues. Absolutely. And that's pretty consistent, I feel, across so many colleges. And also with uh, high school, having to communicate uh, with your administration and with your teachers about your mental health is also incredibly difficult. So I don't know. I don't understand why we're not putting more um, emphasis on this. Again, I mentioned this before, the destigmatization of mental health has been occurring. Like, we don't have institutions that you see in those movies like one flew over the cuckoo's nest like mm -hmm. it's not as bad i guess as then people have started to talk about mental health more but like i don't know it's i'm still not seeing the type of infrastructure that would help me to succeed as an anxious person and to help relieve myself of my anxiety so i can succeed more Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. I think it's one of those issues that has been swept under the rug. I think it's being addressed more by the students than the administration. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a really unfortunate thing is so for Mental Health Week, it was the week of midterms. Oh, yes, it was. So, you know, the maybe not everyone was notified. Maybe our marketing and our public relations could have been better on both ends to express this is what's happening. But I, I really think it's on the administration on this one. If, you're, if your students are putting on Mental Health Week... 
we need to be in tune as a cohesive university to acknowledge this and say, what are we going to do to really show our support in this area? Don't throw us a party and bring us balloons. No, 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 no. Maybe say there isn't going to be exams this week or even the idea of exams in general. I mean, that's a whole nother separate topic. I don't believe in exams. I think they're absolutely mm-hmm. pointless. It's a timestamp of how much you knew at that time. But I get this is the institution and this has been going on for the last how many hundred years that's a different topic. But getting back to the main idea of this issue is that we need to figure out what is proactive and how do students feel supported? Because I think, you know, when you have a broken leg, that is something that people can visually see. Oh, you know, this person is hindered in some way or enabled. Mental health doesn't work that way. It is not a tangible thing that you can just, you know, say, oh, I'm sorry that you're sick today. It's a little bit more complicated. There's a lot more factors going on in someone's mind that are not able to be drawn out or seen and say, oh, well, okay, just because I can see your brain scan, now I understand you've got mental health. It does not operate this way. And I think the issue that the administration needs to deal with is saying, how are we going to acknowledge this? And we understand that this is a huge issue for our students and we want them to feel safe and supported here with our lovely, 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 expensive ass tuition dollars. I would think we go to more use for this. Yeah. um, And I want to point out that mental health week, that's like a national week. That's something that occurs across the country. And when no effort is made, at least from what I've seen, I've the only thing I've seen from mental health week, I know that it happens every year as for like a mental health advocate and as someone who has mental health issues, I know when mental health week is, but like, I've only seen it at least for this year. I've only seen it on social media from, uh, student groups, student groups. Exactly. Um, and I haven't seen it from anything else from BU. I haven't seen it from any anything else from, like, major news sources. I mm-hmm. haven't seen it from any other major businesses or organizations that operate in the U.S. So, again, I... It doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm sorry I'm getting like a little angry about this, but when so many people have mental health issues and have mental health struggles and we have a full on like mental health awareness week, it just doesn't make sense to, to me to like, I don't know, not promote the hell out of it. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I totally agree. But I also think the other thing is, you know, I what I, I would have kind of noticed is that, you know, we have a really good, we do a really good job of talking the talk and really saying, oh, we're going to change all these things. But the first thing I think the administration really needs to do is kind of take a pulse check on the entire university and say, okay, if we were to implement something, how implementable is this? So, Maybe have them take an empathy test or, you know, if you're going to implement a policy that where exams cannot be given on the week of mental health week or, you know, some sort of policy where kids are able to relax or just feel at peace and go do something that's not studying or grinding all the time. I mean, outside activities are a different story, but even within from a class setting or saying, you know, we're going to do an in-class activity or, oh, we're just going to have a lecture about something else or a way to just say, you know what, it's the middle of midterm season. We need to just kind of take a step back and reflect because I think mental health is becoming more aware in elementary schools, at least where I am from, like where there are like meditation time or reflection time or a moment of silence. But I think this needs to be put at the higher level, too, of some sort of way of saying we are taking a stance to acknowledge this and not just a fluff. But the thing is, you have to kind of take a sample and say, well, how how would this get implemented and would people be on board with this? Because I'm really sick and tired of saying, oh, we're implementing these policies or, oh, we're going to do such a great job, but then not see it fully through. 
and also, again, I mean, we were talking a lot about uh, administration in regards to mental health, but it also has a lot to do with other employees at like BU or at any college campus. The most interactions I have with people about mental health are usually in academics. And the people who I'm probably the most transparent about my mental health state is with my professors. Because they're the ones giving me like a lot of work. And if I, you know, have, if I'm having like a really bad week for my anxiety, I'm going to tell them. And I found that a lot of my younger professors are way more sympathetic to uh, mental health issues than the older professors. And again, I understand that. Uh, Back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, mental health was a much different thing than it is today. So I I understand why there is a disconnect between some of my older professors, specifically like baby boomer professors, um, may have a misunderstanding about um, mental health and how it affects students. And that's totally fine, Uh, but it's on the university, if these are employees at the university, it's on them to educate them and give them some sort of training to let them know, like, hey, this is a prevalent illness amongst a significant portion of our student body. This is how you deal with this illness. Just like, you know, they have outlines for how you would deal with like a physical illness. Um, Here's how you would deal with a mental illness and just work from there because I've had varying supports from my professors and it would be nice to standardize that a little bit more, especially because I say academics is one of the places where I'm getting, at least for this this semester, the most anxiety from. So I did a presentation about mental health uh, last semester, and from that presentation, I think my number one um, message from that was, uh, if we want to change the system, we have to talk about mental health more and Mm -hmm. make an effort to make sure that it's not a hush-hush topic and um, bring it to the forefront of every facet that affects us. I I like to do that through like talking about mental health as candidly and as casually as I can. And I mean, that might be different for other people, obviously, uh, other people who may not be at the same, I guess, like, I don't want to say competency, but, you know, people are at different places where, like, mentally, um, where they would feel comfortable doing something where they don't feel comfortable doing something. But the number one thing I'm guessing in order to get the changes that we want glow is to say, well, hold up, like, I actually am struggling from anxiety. I take medication for it. It's normal. It's something I live with. But as someone with a chronic illness, uh, this is how I would like to see changes happen. And even with people who, like, don't have diagnosed mental health disorders, like, I understand uh, if you don't have, like, a diagnosis, you can still be anxious. You can still be depressed sometimes, and you should definitely have a voice in that, too. Um, It's on everyone for if they're feeling anxious, if they're feeling depressed, if they're feeling overwhelmed, to speak up and to demand that they're not going to be silenced by anyone. When mental health is just something that you live with and something that you, you live with constantly, it's... Not but what about the people that don't necessarily want to talk about it or be open about it? I totally understand that. It's something that you have to build up over time. Like, at least for me, it's been a series of years in order to get to the state where I am at now. 
Um, but, you know, just helping other people feel comfortable talking about themselves and being vulnerable with you is, you know, that's the one step that you can take to help the sure. larger issue to just let people know, like, hey, I'm here for you. If you have any issues, like, let me know. Um, and even, I mean, even if you can't, if you're not in a good uh, mental state to help that person just knowing what resources there are available and like effective resources not trash ones but like sure. effective resources that you can uh, perhaps refer someone to um, and just a uh, conversation of mental health as I've mentioned before has gone through ebbs and flows over the years and um, it's gone from something that you would get institutionalized if you said that you were super anxious to you're just living your life. Yeah, it's just taking those small steps, I guess, to get to an optimal place in your life where you feel comfortable talking about that. I'm not expecting you to go out there and be all vulnerable if you're not comfortable with it just yet. I would say my stance on this issue is about, you know, I would say, I guess from my own experience, I've definitely been in times where I've been really upset or depressed or, um, you know, just going through a lot. And especially like when you have big transitions in your life, too, I feel like those can be sometimes the hardest and is when you're transitioning from one milestone to the next or chapters in your mm -hmm. life. And so I guess to me, what I usually have done is said, look, I'm going through a lot. Don't ask me about it. I'm living my life. If I seem this way, this is why. And end of story. And that's where I keep it. And mm -hmm. I and I and I do that for a reason because I don't like to necessarily impede on other people and you know be like, oh my god, this is my new life now, or setting this new standard of oh, feel bad for me because I think there is this this stigma still like, oh, you guys are you know not hard enough for the real world, or you're not ready, or oh, you guys need to get over this. But I think as Gen Zers, we're trying to look at this practically because mm -hmm. we are a lot more productive than other generations historically speaking. So don't give us this argument of oh well you guys are not ready for the real world or oh you don't know what it's like but we already are experiencing it that's why we are having these issues and so I think it's a really interesting polar opposites of an argument I think the mm -hmm. next kind of like way I want to segue this is since we haven't really touched on this but some of the um uh, Soundbites said this was social an impact on social media. Mm. I guess the way I would start off with answering this is that I think it's a factor that can play into mental health, but it's not the cause. Oh, I yeah. am not convinced that, oh, because of social media, we're more depressed. I, I, I completely disagree with that. I think it's a factor that has made depression worse, but I don't think it's, oh my God, our generation is more depressed because we have um, social media. But um, I wanted to let you speak, Caroline. So uh, tell me your thoughts on this. Well, yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. It's one factor in this culture of anxiety. It's a microcosm in this larger macrocosm of why um, people are more anxious and more depressed nowadays. It's obviously not the, um, the number one factor in this phenomenon. We've discussed other factors that we believe to be the main influence. So let's back it up to, I guess, the beginning of our times here at BU, where you and I, we both started last January. And I don't know if you felt this, but coming in and already seeing on social, I mean, you don't use social media as much as I do, mm -hmm. but I was, you know, I came into BU and following people on Instagram and already seeing people having the best time ever at college made me feel incredibly left out and incredibly just there was a disconnect between 
these other people and me like oh how can you be living such an amazing fun life right now if like me and a lot of people that I know but we don't talk about it are struggling to make friends and find our way in this big big school uh and I remember during the first year in general I'd say even up until London uh, I remember people from my cohort specifically from CGS uh taking social media breaks or um taking or like deleting social media because they understood it wasn't healthy for them to keep on comparing their lives to everyone else's uh instagrams however then there's a dichotomy of you go onto people's uh finstas which are uh like private instagram accounts that uh just your friends follow and on there that's where people vent about their true feelings and how there's they're actually struggling and how um they're you know really lonely or they're not doing well in their classes or they're just really really depressed but they don't show that on their real instagram because that wouldn't look good and i just i don't i got really angry about that disconnect i mean i did get a when did i get my finsta i made my finsta maybe like half no i made it at the beginning of uh january in january uh, because I felt like, oh, oh, I need a place to, um, to air out my dirty laundry or just to rant all the time. And then I found myself being way more candid on that, where I'm supposed to be showing, like, where I'm showing my real life than on my real Instagram account, where, you know, you'd assume I'd be showing my real life, but I'm not. I'm just showing the snapshots of, um my like happiest moments and um i think i would say that social media has been a what's the word a very it's been a recipe for comparison yeah um and i think that's something we definitely see more in our generation comparing ourselves to others and feeling upset or feeling down because we are not portrayed to these other people like you know when you see like a group of friends hanging out and you're like oh my god they're all hanging like fomo fear of yes. missing out a term that we use a lot in gens as gen zers and so i think that that's very prevalent um but i think the thing is it's about the way to use social media and the way to really encompass that and i think it's easier said than done because i can say a bunch of words but it's not going to be helpful unless it's really implemented so for me my own journey with this is you know in high school i definitely felt a lot of fear of missing out oh my god i'm not at parties oh my god, I don't have a boyfriend. Oh my god, there's all these things that I'm like, oh wow, they're so happy. Because I think it's about seeing happiness on these on these platforms that really gets you the most, especially when you're not feeling that mm -hmm. way. And I think that there's something to be said for that issue. And I think the way that we look at our lives and compare it to these perfect romanticized versions of what our lives could be and what the point of these photos are like I mean are they you know is it because you're collecting photography and you're just wanting to have a place to store your work or is it a place to showcase the best parts or aspects of your life and I think social media is a double-pronged story kind of like you were saying Caroline where we have Instagrams where we really are talking about our real life problems but I'll be honest I don't know on social media how to respond when someone's really upset about something to a mass audience it's almost like I want to just DM them and say hey are you okay is something going on and maybe that is the point of Instagrams uh, I don't I don't actually know but to me I'm the kind of person of hey we're having a conversation let me tell you about this part of my life that's going on 
um, because I don't necessarily feel like it's prevalent to let the whole world know one person at a time. I don't see why we can't do that. Again, I think I talked about this in an earlier episode, but after doing my mental health project for my class that I was in, I decided to do like a de-glammed post on Instagram saying like, oh, hey, like I did a project recently on mental health. I've had a really bad semester and I'm just going to let like people know it just as like a statement, I guess. And from there, like I just I felt the the need to do that to further uh, destigmatize mental health, because if you use your Instagram the way that you say you are to like connect with your friends then letting your friends know that you're struggling, I don't see anything wrong with that. No, there's n- there's nothing wrong with that. I don't I don't see that at all. But I think, I think for me, I never post about that. Not because I'm not real. It's just more of that. I'd rather discuss that on a one-on-one basis. Oh, I understand that completely. Um, from that post specifically, I got a lot of my closest friends reaching out to me and saying like hey, like, are you okay? And from there, I would have conversations with them, like, hey, I actually am not doing okay. Thank you for asking. Um, So, I mean, I don't know. Doing that, just, like, posting something like that, I feel is a statement against um, social media in general, and then from there. But just putting that out there, and then from there, being more comfortable with talking to other people about uh, how bad your semester is, or how bad your anxiety or depression is, it was kind of just like a going off point. But I think it's really about, you know, maybe it's a wake up call for a generation to say, hmm, what makes us happy at the end of the Uh day? What makes us happy? And really kind of almost going back to the roots of what, you know, constitutes a good day what constitutes a good life and being able to find those factors and being able to say this is to me what I want and being able to look at it and use social media as almost a way of inspiration and so for example really a good thing so honestly I might sound kind of like a crazy nuthead but I would say my biggest form of social media is LinkedIn and um, maybe it's because I'm a crazy maniac but I I use LinkedIn not so much as oh my god everyone else is doing so many cooler things than I am well I think having this podcast is pretty lit but aside from that uh, I use it more as a way to see a as a discovery point of what do I want to do with my life and what are ways I can do that understanding jobs that in my industry that I don't even know about and being able to ask questions about this following up with professors or people outside in the industry or whoever it might be and using this as a learning tool and I think if we're able to use social media as a learning point saying I am not this person I do not want to be this person that I'm seeing on a platform on a screen and this is the only way I know them but more as a oh that's really cool what they're doing and saying maybe maybe I want to look into that and I think the thing is because everyone has a different path. I think that's the thing we have to reiterate of our generation is everyone has a different path. Everyone has different goals. Everyone has a different mindset about how they're going to accomplish those things. So if you see somebody that doesn't look stressed out at all, maybe they're not taking super difficult classes, but you will always have your assets of traits of your strengths that no one can take away from you and no one is necessarily going to be better than you at. And I think I know this is all easier said than done, but I think it's a really important or crucial statement to make because social media media does not emphasize this social mm-hmm. media is just like let it be where you want and of course you know we're only so developed in terms of our emotions one of the most least developed parts of our brain 
And we're obviously going to go with our natural tendencies because we're humans. This is why philosophers have spent hundreds and hundreds of years talking about this. We really haven't changed. It's really unfortunate. <laughs> and so with social media is just a new venue to display how humanity is still the same and we still get worked up about really small things. And so the thing is, if we're not going about this in a guided way where we're limiting ourselves, it's like there's a reason why when you're a kid, your mom won't say, don't buy every single cookie uh, box in the aisle. There's a reason for that. Social media can be some of the similar things when you're just going on that feed and you're just going through and you're seeing all these things and you're like, oh my God, I'm like so sad now. Like that's why I turned my phone into black and white for those who don't know. So then I don't, I'm not addicted to going on my phone like that. It's a, it's a blocker. It's like, you know, having those geolocations that says, yeah, we're not going to Starbucks today. You don't need another cup of coffee. There's a reason. There's a reason why we have external factors. No, there's a lot of research being done on self-control. And I think using social media is an exercising point of moderating our self-control to not go down this rabbit hole since we have such natural tendencies. Social media succumbs to all some of the worst humani- humanity's worst tendencies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it becomes a really big critical point. Like, for example, I'm really glad that Instagram is taking away the likes. Yeah. I think that's huge. That is such a statement saying that we are really concerned about mental health here because likes do so much and I know that it's almost wiping out an entire industry of influencers and how popular people are like, oh my God, you know, that person got this many likes and it's a metric, especially in the communications industry of how successful you're doing. But I think we need to really address this because it's not healthy and not conducive. For sure. So just to wrap up this episode, I thought it was a good idea to reach out to the people who inspired me to start talking about mental health in a uh, free and non-judgmental manner. Uh, I was involved in a nonprofit called Speak Up back in high school. Uh, Their mission statement is that uh, they provide youth, educators, and parents with the skill, the opportunity, and support to speak up and be heard on the critical topics of today. Uh, And that could be many different topics, but they definitely excel in um, mental health. And the many of the women who run it are mental health professionals. So I got the opportunity to sit down with the program director, Ann Berniker, um, and I asked her some questions about the work she does and some with working with uh, people of our generation, uh, you know, Gen Z kids, maybe a little younger, a little older, uh, just what she has seen from our mental health in general and uh, how that compares to the state of mental health in older generations. So my name is Ann Berniker. I am the program director at Speak Up, which is a nonprofit based out of Pennsylvania. And what we do is we have school partners and we bring youth educators and parenting adults together to talk about topics that are really tough to talk about that the students identify, such as mental health is always a really big topic. Other topics are could be drugs and alcohol or social media or sex and pressure, whatever the students feel are really critical in their lives at that time. And they brainstorm and narrow it down to each each program. They get to pick about four topics um, to discuss with the adults in their lives. What are some observations, I guess, that you see amongst people in our age group, in, in my age group, in regards to mental health? Sure. I think um, 
I think a lot of young um, people are really struggling. They're feeling a lot more pressure than I would say from my generation, pressure to be successful, pressure to succeed and to go to college. Sometimes the path looks very linear when it's not. Life paths, journeys go up and down, and I think there is a lot of pressure that sometimes the young people put on themselves or they might be feeling pressure through their school or through their parenting adults. So I can't attribute it to one thing, Mm -hmm. but broadly we're seeing a lot of students struggling with that. They're, they're really overloaded. There's, there's a lot to do and they feel sometimes that they have to be the best at everything, which as we know is really super hard and practically impossible. So I think part of it could be that. And I also think there's a lot of awareness. So now like it is, we are reducing the stigma. So it is getting easier to talk when you're not feeling well, you know, when you're feeling mentally unwell to be able to say, this is what I'm feeling. I need some support. So it's being identified hopefully earlier and earlier. So where it may seem like there's a lot, I think it's the comfort of being able to talk about it. Are there any other suggestions or things that you've seen uh, young people practicing that has worked well with reducing their anxiety and their depression from these uh, factors that you mentioned? I think talking about it is the most important because when you is when you talk about it with others, you realize you're not alone. Other people are struggling with the same thing. And therefore, once you talk about it and know that it's okay, you're more able to reach out for help. I think other things, you know, there's a lot of studies on meditation and mindfulness of reducing stress and anxiety. Um, I think that could help. The good thing also is when you're talking about it, you can get the resources you need. So there isn't just one fix for, you know, there's so many different struggles when it comes to our mental wellness um, that it can be, you know, depending on what it is you're struggling with is what will help the most, whether it's talking to your counselor at school or talking to a counselor outside of school or doing mindfulness classes. I think it can lead into a lot of different directions, but the base of it is being able to talk about it, reducing the stigma, knowing you're not alone, and asking for the help, and knowing there's so many resources out there in our communities, in our schools, that you don't have to go at it alone, that -hmm. there are professionals, there is help for everything. So I guess one thing I've noticed across many people from my generation is that people from my generation may not or at least some of them may not be as open to talking to their teachers or their parents or adults about their mental health just because if you're talking to an adult who may not have firsthand knowledge about mental health or mental health struggles, there's kind of a disconnection, kind of a misunderstanding about what you're going through and trying to relay what you're going through to that adult figure. Do you have any suggestions or any sort of insights uh, as an adult for how that sort of misunderstanding could be reduced? Yeah, I think for adults, I mean, that's the beauty of Speak Up because we do put the adults in a position to really listen and to hear what's on the minds of kids. 
and not that they have to be an expert on anything, but just helping bridge students to support when it is needed. So I think there are lots of different things. I think there are barriers of why kids don't talk to the adults in their lives. Speak Up does a wonderful job of breaking down those barriers. So my suggestion is, of course, if any adult, if there's a Speak Up in your school, to get to it. But when there isn't, it's really just listening, like being there are things we can do as parenting adults and as educators in a school is giving the space and the understanding to listen to the student, know that we can take the pressure off of ourselves, that we don't have to be the solution, but we do want to listen, encourage our students, thank them for telling us, encouraging them to tell us, and then bridge them to the support that is needed. I think sometimes some people, there are barriers where they feel like, oh, I don't believe in mental, I don't believe in depression. Like there, that those pieces are a little bit trickier. I think in everyone's life, it's finding those people you can talk to. So mm-hmm. at Speak Up, we're all about you know, it might not be your parenting adult that you can go to if you're feeling depressed, because maybe it is that they don't believe in depression. But who else is there? Is there a counselor at your school? Is there a friend's parent? Is there a older cousin in your family or something? It's kind of finding the people and it may not work the first time. So you might go to somebody and and then you were shut down and it didn't work. It's almost like trying on good, comfortable shoes. You know, if you try on a pair and they're not comfortable, you go to the next pair. So really looking for the adults, because there are a lot of adults out there who want to be supportive and want to listen to kids, and really they're on the side of the students. And I would say there's a lot of those people in their schools, especially high school, college age, those folks who are educators in in schools they really are in it because they love their youth they love you know not just teaching English but really knowing you know how can I help these students they know there's a lot of pressure so it's kind of maybe going in that direction and just giving the chance always the best place to start is counselors in a school there's sometimes in some schools there's stigma like oh I can't go to the counselor's office because then I'll be labeled that I went to the counselor's office but they're really there for a reason and they can really help as well. So it's kind of being brave on the student's part and also for our my generation, for the adults that are in students' lives, being open and non-judgmental and really listening. What was the type of support or even what was the conversation around mental health when you were in high school? And like, has that changed or hopefully improved over the past couple of decades? Oh my goodness, it has improved dramatically. I don't think we even talked about mental health when I was in high school. It wasn't something that was discussed. I think, you know, even I've been with Speak Up for 10 years and 10 years ago, We would be at a school and the students were talking about what was hard to talk about. And our founder, Marty Gillen, asked a question. She said they were talking they were talking about depression and one student had brought it up and everyone was like, no, no, no. So our founder, Mrs. Gillen, asked a question of, hey, raise your hand if you know somebody who has dealt with depression. And she described it of what it may look like. Every student on the team raised their hand. And I think there was a lot of stigma even just 10 years ago about how do we talk about this? In my generation, it was swept under the rug, and you just hope you didn't trip over that lump in the rug. I don't think there was a lot of awareness. There wasn't 
there wasn't really that that name for it, so it wasn't discussed. Now, I think it has. I mean, it's changed in so many, um, so many great ways that it's not being swept under the rug as much. It still is in some cases. I think. I think we still have a lot of work to do, but I do feel we've made great leaps and great strides in you know, normalizing that everyone struggled something at some point and making that okay. Where do you see the discussion of mental health and going in like the next five years, the next 10 years or so? I see it as only getting better because I, one thing I see is that this generation, your generation of youth is amazing and they are honest, they are open And I think it will just continue. Sometimes we can't see it when someone's struggling, so we at Speak Up ask kids to say it. So, And I think your generation is excellent at when given that space to be able to say it. And that's contagious. I think when students talk and when they're talking about their hard things and other students hear that, then, you know, like I said, they all feel that it's okay. And then they're able to talk about it. So it it becomes the norm to be able to say, hey, I'm struggling now, or I struggled before, and this is what I did to get better. And so then someone else can learn from that. So you're helping yourself while you're helping others. Do you have any final takeaway points about Speak Up or about the conversation around mental health? I think the most important thing is to know that everybody does struggle with something at some point. And I do walk away from every speak up and our whole speak up team does knowing that our world is in good hands because your generation is amazing. And as many, you know, so many people think, oh, the teenagers today, they can't communicate because of the cell phones and this and that. I We do not believe that to be true at all. I think you're excellent communicators and to be able to communicate about your mental health and your struggles and what has worked, what has not worked can only make it better and make it more open and to pave the way for the generation. All right. Anything else you want to add? It's been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much, Caroline. No, thank you, Glow. Um, Again, I want to just one more message Uh, to everyone out there, if you yourself are struggling with anything, don't be afraid to talk about it. Um, Don't be afraid to ask for help. Uh, Therapy isn't just for people with uh, mental disorders. Same with counseling. It's for anyone who needs it. Uh, And if you know me, even if you don't know me, just hit me up. Um, If you need someone to talk to, I'm there. I feel you. Um, And yeah, that's, that's all I want to say about that. Just keep on doing your best. <laughs> and good luck with finals, everyone. Yes. <laughs> all right. Go Off is a podcast affiliated with WTBU at Boston University.